Please remain standing while we go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we come before you this Wednesday evening in the name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to praise you, to adore your most holy triune name, to worship you for your glory and your goodness to us above all in the giving, the sending of your only begotten Son to be our Savior. Lord, we thank you for bringing us safely to the middle of this week. We thank you for, Lord, every good and perfect gift which has come to us, not by chance, but, Father, by your fatherly, unchanging hand. We, uh, Father, uh, bless you for everything, for the ability to work and to study. And, Father, for now, this time of fellowship, this time of prayer, and this time of learning, Father, from your great acts in history, from your faithfulness to your church, from the faithfulness of uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, Lord, we ask your blessing, a, a special blessing upon this time, that your name would be hallowed, that your name would be lifted up, Uh, that we, Father, your people, would be encouraged by, uh, Lord, uh, the saints who have gone before us. Uh, Lord, that we would grow in courage and in boldness and in wisdom for the good works which you have prepared in advance for us to walk in, in this time and in this place. Father, we thank you uh, for each one of us here. We pray that you would grow us all in grace in the fruits of your Holy Spirit, that we would grow in love to you who loved us first and gave your only begotten Son to save us from our sins. We pray for the families that are represented here, that you would bless uh, the husbands and the wives, that you would bless the marriages, uh, Father, uh, that they would reflect the the holiness and uh, the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love, faithful covenant love to us, his bride. We pray for the children. We thank you, Father, for uh, the gift of children. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon them, that you would grow each of them, uh, Lord, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men, that you would, uh, Father, protect them from uh, the world and the deceitfulness of sin Uh, Lord, we pray that you would preserve them through faith for the day of Christ, that you would, uh, Father, provide them godly spouses with whom to live and to serve and to worship. Uh, Lord, we pray for them and ask your blessing upon them. Lord, we pray for your church. We thank you for this congregation uh, of saints. We pray for our pastor, for our elders and deacons. Lord, we pray for their families. We pray that you would keep each of them from sin, that you would fill their hearts with the joy of your salvation, that you would give them wisdom, uh, the wisdom that is from above for the work that you have called them to do. We thank you for their faithfulness and how they have led us and have been a source of encouragement to us uh, over so many years. And we pray that you would preserve them and continue, Father, to bless them that they might be a blessing to us as our under-shepherds. Lord, we pray for uh, gospel growth, not only in this city, but in all the nations of the world. We pray for uh, missionaries, uh, Lord, both those that we know and love and those that we don't know. We pray that you would 
preserve them, that you would increase their faithfulness, their fruitfulness, according to the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray that uh, the kingdom of Christ would continue to grow even this evening, even this day, Father, in all countries of the world, that the lost would be saved, would be found. Uh, Father, that uh, your people would be built up in holiness. Lord, we pray for those who are among us, who are recovering from surgeries. Uh, we pray for those who, uh, Lord, are, are suffering in other ways. We ask that you would uh, be near, Father, to those uh, who are sick or suffering or recovering. We pray you would strengthen them. We pray that you would give them the joy of your Holy Spirit and preserve them, carry them through these times. We pray for those who have recently lost loved ones, that you would comfort them uh, through the hope of the resurrection. Lord God, we pray. Lord, we also offer a special prayer for the Sutonu family as they prepare to depart, to move to South Carolina. We, uh, Father, pray that you would oversee all the details of this move. Uh, Lord, we thank you for their faith, uh, for their uh, example of godliness, which they have been to so many. We pray for them as a family, that you would bless their marriage, that you would bless their daughters, uh, that they would grow to be women who fear and who love the Lord. Lord, we pray that uh, you would grant them safety on the road and that you would establish them in their new home. Uh, Lord, that you would bless them there, that, uh, Lord, that you bless them with fruitfulness, Father, that they would grow and uh, that many would be uh, drawn to Christ and built up in him through their faithful example. Lord, as we turn now to... uh, The lesson this evening, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, and we thank you again for this time that you have given us, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing, if you will, uh, while we read God's Word, and then uh, we will begin. We'll be reading tonight from uh, the book of Hebrews, um, book of Hebrews, chapter 11, uh, verses 30 to 40, a passage that a Dane read uh, for the first lesson of this series as we're reflecting on God's work in the past in church history. Um, we're going to read uh, verses 30 to 40 and then begin. Please listen uh, as I read uh, the word of God. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword, They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me, I'm just going to turn off my phone quickly because it's starting to make noise. And hopefully that will... Okay, very good. Well, it's a joy to see all of you here uh, tonight. We are, um, there are handouts on the back. If you, if you did not get one, you can go back and get one. Uh, we are considering uh, Early Western Missions, that's the title, and the ministry of a man named Boniface. Now, Boniface is not his first name. It's not his birth name. That's his Latin name. Uh, as we will learn, his name is actually Anglo-Saxon. It's Winfred, uh, which I just think is a great name. If you have a son, just consider that for a name, Winfred. Um, but we are considering his life and work this evening. Um, introduction, and this is something just to have as a banner sort of over this evening's study together. Uh, in the midst of civil, civilizational death and rebirth, Christ expands his kingdom geographically, establishing it among the Germanic peoples of Central Europe, Western Central Europe, characterized less by, by, less by intellectual development and more by heroic action. Boniface typifies early medieval missionary endeavors and succeeds in establishing and organizing the medieval German church. He is really considered, he's called the Apostle of Germany. Okay, so when we think about his significance for a nation, uh, for a people, um, this is who we are to have in mind, the Apostle of Germany. Well, if you remember last week, Dane did an excellent job describing the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea taking place in the early 4th century, in 325, uh, to decide the teachings to decide uh, what, does the, what do the scriptures say concerning the relationship of the Father and the Son, of the Father to Jesus, the Son. What do the scriptures teach? And Dane showed that, uh, that uh, the Council of Nicaea produced a statement affirming in clear technical language uh, the, uh, the, the unity, the consubstantiality, the same essence-ness Right of the Father and the Son, and then how that uh, almost immediately, um, right after that victory, you would think, right, plummeted into a period, a number of decades of, of confusion and apparent defeat before being, uh, before being reestablished. Well, we are kind of fast-forwarding this evening. Okay, That's 4th century, 325, Roman Empire, relatively stable, peaceful, Etc. We are fast-forwarding now uh, into the 8th century in, in Europe. Okay? Fast-forwarding uh, many uh, centuries to the 8th century. Now, what is the greatest change, right, if you could put your finger on it, what's the greatest change that takes place from the beginning of the 4th century to the time of Boniface, to the time of Winfred that we are considering tonight? Well, it's, of course, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, right? The fall of the Western Roman Empire, we remember in the year 410, Rome was sacked by Alarak the Goth. We remember that 
uh, in terms of geopolitical significance that maybe didn't have as big a significance as you might think, but in terms of the, the significance, the cultural significance, the civilizational significance of that event, we uh, know that uh, Augustine is, of course, working at that time, and he writes his, one of his best-known works, The City of God, in response to that. The pagans are saying, see, see, look, Christian, look what you did. You're the cause of this. And he uh, masterfully destroys that, 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 uh, that claim uh, through his work. Uh, 410, the sack of Rome. But then, later in the century, and I put the date here, 476, is considered to be the date when you have the, the deposition of the last Roman emperor. Romulus Augustulus is, is, is removed. And that's sort of the... If you have to pinpoint a date, right, for the end of the Western Roman Empire, I think 476, the end of the 5th century is a good date. Well, in the 5th century, so we're dealing in the 400s, Western Europe sees numerous repeated migrations and invasions of various Germanic peoples. And I, on the back of your sheet, there is a map uh, that's provided that enables you to see uh, just how many different groups of Germanic peoples called barbarians. Of course, they did not consider themselves barbarians. They considered themselves quite, you know. But uh, these various migrations and invasions of Germanic peoples. Um, it was a tumultuous century. It was basically, I, I, I looked at a timeline and I marked every time there was a battle or an invasion of some sort. And in the 400s, it's amazing. Basically, from the beginning of the century... Um, the Roman legions withdraw from Britain in the early 400s right to the end. It's just one after another of successive migrations, invasions, and uh, in Western Europe, a time of chaos, a time of danger. The old Greco-Roman order begins to disappear, but of course it doesn't disappear overnight, and it doesn't fade at the same rate in every place, Okay. So, for example, in Gaul, in modern-day France, it happens very quickly. And at the beginning of the 5th century, you have all the schools are open, the municipality, uh, municipal governments are open. A hundred years later, nothing's open. It's gone. Uh, and wealthy landowners are holed up in their, in their, in their houses, basically, with you know, private uh, guards. Education is taking place in the home through private tutors. Everything's basically gone. Um, but in Italy, it survives a little bit longer. So it's not happening at the same rate at, uh, in, in, in every place. Uh, even though this is taking place, Western Latins and even some of the Germanic peoples themselves, uh, such as the Ostrogoths in Italy, still saw themselves as part of that empire, right? It's not like you wake up one day and you say, well, okay, Rome's fallen, we're in the Middle Ages now, and we better get used to it, right? We've got to start acting differently. No, they, they still consider, despite these, these disruptions, they still consider themselves, no, 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 we're still part, this is just a temporary setback of some sort, uh, but they still consider themselves part of the one empire. And what we'll see later is well into the 7th century, uh, well into, and even later, they still considered themselves part of the one church, Right Now, there were regional differences uh, that they recognized, but it's not like they said, okay, now we're the Western Roman Catholic Church, different from the... No, 
they still consider themselves basically part of this Christian empire, basically part of this one empire and this one church, despite these disruptions. The East uh, continued in productive theological development. Um, one of the things that you see, I mean, you look at the, the major ecumenical councils, the, the seven ecumenical councils, where are they all taking place? They're all taking place in the East, right? In Asia Minor. Uh, in particular, the Council of Ephesus in 433, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. So while the West is suffering these, uh, these severe disruptions, uh, the East is, is actually moving along quite well, uh, developing theologically, producing these great statements. We have the, the, the Council of Chalcedon in the middle of the 5th century. Um, a good figure, if you're looking to, to study these things further, a good figure that sort of typifies uh, the unique situation, the uniquely challenging situation that you had in the West is a figure called Gregory the Great. And he was Pope, he was the Bishop of Rome, um, and he provides, I say, a representative sample of Western church life. And his life is very interesting. He comes from a line of noble um, Italians, noble Romans. His great-grandfather was actually also the Bishop of Rome at one point, so he has that in his family. Uh, but he is put into the position, um, and at that time, the Lombards are invading Italy. There is famine, there is flooding, the city is a mess. And he is basically in this position of um, a, a bishop doing the business of the church, serving the, 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 the people. But at the same time, he's got his other foot in the civil sphere because no one else is there to do it, right? I mean, this, the, 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 it's, the civilization is collapsing. People think it's the end of the world. And so he's got, he's got his foot kind of in both, in both camps. And we're going to see him again, actually, for another, uh, for another reason, a very good reason, um, in just a little bit. So these ruptures, these disruptions of the beginning in the 5th century, uh, they would slowly produce over the, over the years uh, the period of, of what would later be termed the Middle Ages. Right? So the Middle Ages slowly, kind of organically, comes out of, these, of, of this period, the 5th, the 6th century, and, and onward. Uh, the New World, so to speak, was a mixture of Latin and Germanic peoples, languages, and cultures. Okay, so we're dealing with new languages, right? We're not, it's not Greek and Latin anymore, right? It's Greek and Latin, or Latin, and Germanic languages. You're dealing with new cultures, okay? These, uh, these uh, Germanic peoples were not, uh, did not grow up uh, hearing of uh, Homer and Odysseus, and right, it's a different culture. It's a different education. It's a different worldview um, that that you're dealing with as well. And also, uh, in some senses, a different, in some ways, a different uh, religion. Okay, so uh, it's a mixture of Latin, Germanic uh, peoples, languages, and cultures. Now, as I said, Christianity faced new challenges. Uh, mainly in the form of pagan Germanic spirituality. Um, uh, we, will, we will see that in a little bit. But you also have emerging political powers. So uh, remember, if you go back to the time of Nicaea, right, we have a relatively peaceful, relatively stable 
unified Roman Empire. Things are clear and clear cut. Well, as we move into the Middle Ages, you don't just have the Roman Empire, which now in the Middle Ages, remember, that's in the East, right? The Roman Empire is still in the East. You now in the West have these new kingdoms, the kingdoms of the Saxons, uh, the Anglo-Saxons in England, but also the Saxons in France, okay? And in, in Germany, the Saxons, you also, I'm sorry, uh, yes, and the Franks principally in, um, in France and Germany. So you have new political powers, um, the Saxons and the Franks, and then the Lombards in, in Italy. Well, in this time, what is one of the major, uh, I guess you could say, success stories, right? The major, um, the major victories of this early period. And I think it is this. It's these early medieval missionary movements. Um, the collapse of Rome and large influx of Germanic nations recreated the need for missions. Okay? Basically recreated, it redrew the map, right? And recreated the need for missions. According to Tertullian, we looked at him a couple weeks ago, uh, Christians are in Roman Britain by the end of the second century. Okay? Christians are in Roman Britain by the end of the second century. We remember Patrick whose dates here, 389 to 461, of course, later than Tertullian, but still earlier. He was a covenant child from Northwest Britain, and we remember what happened to him, right? He was kidnapped by Irish pirates okay, and taken to Ireland. Right? Worked, was forced to work as a slave. Uh, the Lord uh, granted him deliverance. He returned. He became uh, a bishop and returned to the island of Ireland to evangelize uh, the people. Um, and so we see that Christianity already has a centuries-long existence in these parts of Europe. This is not absolutely new. Um, but when Rome withdrew from Britain, again in the early 5th century, the legions withdrew, and what came in to fill the place? What came in to fill their the void that was created, it was these Germanic tribes, principally the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, when we're thinking about England. And they drove the native British population, okay, the, Ro the, the Roman British population, into places like Wales, uh, modern-day Wales. Now, at this time, there were, there were basically three major waves of missionary movements in the early Middle Ages, okay? Uh, three major waves of missionary movements in the Middle Ages. First, we have the Irish missionaries who are seeking to evangelize Scotland, northern England, and even on the continent. And two names to be uh, familiar with here. One is Columba. Uh, you know the tune St. Columba? So uh, Columba from 521 to 597. And he established a monastery on the island of Iona, from which Christianity was spread uh, to Scotland and northern England, and he's considered the apostle of Scotland. Now, when I say monastery, uh, we might have certain ideas that come to mind. Many of these monasteries were almost like a combination of a, a church, a seminary, a school, and a missionary training center all at once, which actually, when you think about it, isn't that awesome? I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you like to have a church 
with a seminary, with a school, and a sending uh, you know, agency all rolled into one, right, on the island of Iona? I mean, doesn't, <laughs> does, that, does that excite anyone, or is, is that just me, right? I mean, that is amazing. Uh, but that's really, the, that's really the model to have in mind. This is a place of work. They would plant, they would grow food. It's a place of worship. It's a place of study. And it's a place of work because they would leave the, the, the monastery and they would go out to preach. Okay? And I know some missionaries would maybe spend six months of study. They would have a six-month period of, of study in the monastery. And then they would have a six-month tour of preaching in, among, the, among the people in, in, in the area. Um, and so Columba is a name to be familiar with there. Uh, his, uh, not contemporary, the one who came after him, uh, Columbanus, his dates are 543 to 615. He uh, went further and evangelized Germans already on the continent. So already prior to Boniface. And so I'm, I, what I'm doing is I'm setting the stage here. Boniface is not the first missionary to the Germans, Okay. Um, he is uh, following in a long line of godly men who have gone before him, uh, including Columbanus, and he evangelized Germans on the continent. He traveled as far as Burgundy, uh, Switzerland, and northern Italy. And actually, he communicated, he had a correspondence with Pope Gregory the Great. So you remember Pope Gregory, who typifies this early medieval period and the difficulties that are, that are being faced in the western uh, half of uh, the once Roman Empire, uh, well, he communicated with Gregory, and he established a monastery in northern Italy, in fact. Well, it wasn't just the Irish, so you have the Irish and the Celts, that's the, 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 the Irish missionary movement, that's uh, perhaps you could say the earliest and, and the first. But you also have efforts coming from the south. So if you think of a northern effort coming from Ireland, you also have a southern effort that's coming from Rome. And this was initiated by going back to Gregory the Great. Okay? So not only was he a bishop, not only was he a, a basically a mayor in charge of the city, uh, but he was also instrumental in sending missionaries to the island of England, to, to Britain. Um, in 596, he sent Augustine, now I put in italics here, of Canterbury, okay, to distinguish him. This is not Augustine of Hippo, okay, this is not, uh, this is not that Augustine, it's another Augustine of Canterbury as a missionary to the, uh, the Jutish kingdom. So the Jutes were a tribe, a Germanic tribe that had come over from the Low Country, uh, to the kingdom of Kent, okay, in modern-day England. Um, Augustine, actually, it's fascinating, and this, you read about this when you read missionary biographies. Augustine started out, and he got scared. He, he I, I mean, he got frightened, and he wanted to turn back, and Gregory uh, didn't let him. <laughs> said, said, no, you need to go, and encouraged him and exhorted him, and Augustine went. And within the space of, I believe, seven years or so, the king of the kingdom of Kent, Ethelbert, uh, converted uh, to Christianity. So there was a southern effort initiated by Gregory the Great. Um, and then the first, uh, the key name to remember is Augustine of Canterbury uh, to the Jewish kingdom of Kent. Well, this Roman work 
was continued under uh, a man named Theodore of Tarsus. And his dates are 668 to 6... Uh, I think I made a mistake there. Yeah, I made a mistake. 668 would be the starting date. Um, and what's fascinating about Theodore of Tarsus, remember I said... In this period, it's not like they woke up one day and said, okay, we're in a new age now called the Middle Ages and we need to... They still considered themselves to be part in some way of the Roman Empire, um, but they also considered themselves... Remember, there is only one church. There's only one denomination, right? And even as late as the 7th century, you have a bishop from Tarsus. Now, where's Tarsus? It's in Asia Minor, traveling to Canterbury to serve there on the other side. And he's leaving the empire. He's leaving the Roman Empire to go to serve under uh, non-Roman rulers in the kingdom, in in the the, uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdom. But it underscores the unity that still existed at this time between the East and the West. Nobody blinked an eye. And, and if, you're, if you're interested, this is someone I would like to learn a lot more about, actually, as I've been studying. Who is this guy? Why did he come? And, and anything else that can be discovered. He's a fascinating character, uh, Theodore of Tarsus. Well, one thing to note is that, as often happens in the history of missions, when you have different uh, sending structures, okay, Uh, one from Ireland and then one from Rome, is the missionaries don't always get along. They have different ideas about how things should be done, different methodology. And there was, sadly, uh, some conflict between uh, the Celtic or Irish missionaries and the customs and practices that they had inherited and that they believed to be in accordance with apostolic authority and those that were coming from Rome and what they believed to be in accord with apostolic authority. Uh, and uh, and there, was, there was, at times, severe conflict uh, between them. Now, it was not conflict of doctrine so much. They affirmed, they believed in the same gospel. It was not a conflict of doctrine so much, but one of practice. Um, and in some cases, uh, more important, and in other cases, I think we could say uh, things of less importance, Um, So things such as uh, the style of haircut of the monk, whether it was fully circular or partly circular, these were the kinds of things that exercised them. Um, And so we can look back and we we can see. We see today, and having been on the field myself, it's amazing how missionaries find ways uh, to argue about things that are relatively unimportant. Like, Like, guys, we're here to convert the lost. Right? Why are we bickering about this? Right? And, and, so, um, and so we can rightly criticize them for this, remembering, though, uh, that we often do the same things. Um, they have this great mission ahead of them, and they're doing good work, and yet being distracted by things like haircuts. Okay? Uh, but Theodore of Tarsus, interestingly, he was uh, someone who sought to bring these two uh, these two groups together. He was considered somewhat of a peacemaker, so he would take uh, bishops who were ordained in the Irish system, and he would put them into churches 
uh, connected with, with, with the Romans. Uh, he, also, the, uh, he also sought other compromises between the two to try to bring these two sides uh, together. Um, now, once converted, and about, by about the year 700, uh, most of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had, uh, had embraced, embraced Christianity. So once converted, the Anglo-Saxon missionaries uh, sought to evangelize the continent. So what's amazing about this, and I think this is just a, we should stand back and, and just marvel at this, is Christianity appears to die in England and Northern Europe. Because, the, 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 because Rome collapses, the legions withdraw, you have this flood of uh, migrants and various Germanic uh, peoples, migrations and invasions. It appears to die. And yet, from the corner of the world, right, that wasn't even part of the Roman Empire, right? Ireland was not part of the Roman Empire. From that place, right, Christianity is slowly brought back, right? I mean, you can't make this up. It appears to die, and yet, from the farthest place, right, westward, the place that you would least expect, right, the rekindling to take place, it actually comes back. And the pagan Anglo-Saxons who came and brutalized the inhabitants that were there, the native inhabitants, they now are converted, most by 700, most of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had embraced Christianity. Uh, some names to, uh, to, to consider here. One is Willibrod, another good name, uh, 658 to 739. Uh, he pioneered gospel work among the pagan Frisians. Uh, so in the Low Countries, Frisia would be uh, in, the, in, the, in the modern-day Low Countries. And he had a kind of a base of operations in uh, Utrecht. So you have Willebrod uh, is, is a, a key figure in this early Anglo-Saxon missionary movement. Okay. But, of, but the greatest, probably, Anglo-Saxon missionary is uh, the person that we are considering this evening, and that is Winfred, or by his Latin name, Boniface. And his years are 673 to 754. And he combines, uh, one author put it like this, he combines Irish zeal with Roman organization. Okay? So the Irish were, um, were known for their holy zealotry. I mean, they were strict disciplinarians, and they have these, uh, they, were, they, were, they were highly disciplined, highly strict, highly zealous workers. Right? But they were not very organized. And their system was one of personal mentorship, and it was a little bit more organic, uh, based around an abbot who would mentor younger men and send them out and these things. The Romans, as we know, tend to organize things quite well. And so they, what they brought to the table was a mind for organization and for consolidation. And these are combined in the figure of, of Boniface. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon missionary strategy, uh, numbers, uh, letter C, uh, differed from the Irish model before them. They worked in close association with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, maybe we might say uh, too close at times, but uh, they, they were very closely connected uh, to, uh, to the Bishop of Rome, to the Pope, 
And also they worked very closely with Frankish political power. Um, and what I mean by that is they would often align themselves through the Pope, because the Pope is making these arrangements, these uh, uh, these uh, relationships with the Frankish kingdom, and the missionaries, the Anglo-Saxon missionaries, would also would would usually utilize those uh, those political arrangements um, for the sake of the gospel. And it, I, I don't know if this is an exact parallel, but it would be something like the way in which, due to the uh, the, the the British Empire in the twentieth or in the nineteenth century, the way that many Western missionaries used. The British Empire, um, you know, not abused the British Empire, but simply providentially, uh, because you have this empire, I'm able to go places, I'm able to do things, I'm able to talk with people, and I have some degree of civil protection. Use it, right? I mean, don't, don't, you know, um, don't, don't uh, waste that opportunity. And so the, the Anglo-Saxon missionaries. Uh, worked in close association, not only with Rome, but also with the Frankish kingdom and, and kings. They gave simple instruction. We will see this, uh, God willing. We're going to read just a, a selection of uh, Boniface's preaching. Simple instruction directly confronting pagan religion and practices. And I think this is, uh, this is something that we can learn, and we're going to touch on this from these early missionaries, and especially Boniface, is he understood, uh, in, in some sense, the simplicity of the message, right? You need to abandon idolatry and submit to God. You need to worship the true God, submit to his son, and put away all that belongs to your previous life. Now, did, was that carried out perfectly in every place? No, of course not. But they understood there's a simplicity, a directness, in challenging, confronting pagan idolatry, in confronting idolatry. Well, let's look a little bit at his life and ministry. Uh, Winfred was a native of England who early on uh, desired to serve the Lord from a young age. Um, and this is something, you know, we pray for our covenant youth, that the Lord, uh, even as Samuel in the temple, uh, that the Lord would stir in their hearts, even from their earliest ages, uh, desires to serve the Lord. Right? Whether that is overseas, whether that's in their own country, in whatever capacity the Lord has, has determined for them in his wisdom and goodness, but we pray that the Lord would do this, would stir in our children hearts uh, to lay down their lives uh, for Christ. So he, from a very early age, has a desire to serve the Lord. He's born in Wessex to a noble family. So he's a West Saxon of noble family. And they, I think, had designs on him. They wanted him to go have a more secular career, uh, maybe much like Luther's father. Uh, but, they, uh, he was, but he desired uh, a, a sacred career. Uh, he was put into a monastery at the age of seven, he advanced rapidly, uh, not only in his learning, uh, but also he was recognized for his piety, for his godliness. Uh, he spent most of his years, actually until the age of 40, uh, at the monastery Nutzal, Nutzal near Winchester. And so it's interesting, you know, the, he spent a long time, um, 40 years, uh, reading and studying, praying, 
um, and, and, and preparing. His mission in Germany, after a brief period of ministry under Willebrod, so we remember Willebrod was one of these first Anglo-Saxon missionaries uh, to the kingdom of Frisia in the Low Countries. Uh, after a brief period under Willebrod in Frisia, Winfred is ordained bishop in 722 by Gregory II, Pope Gregory II, to evangelize the regions of Thuringia and Hesse in modern-day Germany. And remember, he's not going in his early trips to uh, in, into Germany, into modern-day Bavaria, he's not going to a place that, that is unevangelized. There are Christians there. There's been a, a record of work there. His job is more of a revitalizer, a reformer. He finds things in a bad shape. He has to get them into, get them into order again. Um, but, but he also preaches to the unconverted, to the unevangelized. And, and this uh, really begins in Thuringia and Hesse in 722. Um, I say here he was no wizard's pupil, though. Uh, he did rebuke in his letters, you can read. He rebukes both his sacred and secular supporters. Uh, he tells the Pope that if um, morals don't get better in Rome, he's not taking any of his disciples there anymore. Um, and apparently uh, sexual ethics were better among the pagan Germans than among, uh, than among those in Rome. And so he actually... Um, um, is a good model in this way. He, he, he had no problem calling out ungodliness, both, uh, both sacred, uh, but then also secular uh, as well. Well, probably the thing that he is most famous for, I think everyone almost has heard of this story. Uh, Boniface was uh, fearless, was direct in confronting uh, paganism. And there is, of course, the famous account of in order to demonstrate to the pagan Germans uh, that their gods are not gods at all, that they have no power, he cuts down uh, the sacred oak of the thunder god Thor at Geismar, um, and he uses the wood to build a church. And, um, and you think, oh, that's so abrasive and... and uh, you know, and, and yet, you know, what does that remind you of? Which Old Testament prophet does that remind you of doing something like that? Um, Elijah, right? Uh, a direct confrontation with idolatry, um, uh, using the wood to build a church. He preached uh, to uh, thousands of people, and apparently he was quite successful with thousands of converts, thousands of conversions uh, uh, at, at, a, at a given time. Uh, so he was a very effective preacher as well. Uh, ten years later, in 732, Boniface is appointed by arch, appointed archbishop by Gregory the, the III, Pope Gregory III, and by 741, he has already trained eight bishops under him. So by 741... Uh, he already has eight bishops uh, under him. So he's very active, not only as an evangelist, not only preaching to the lost, but also raising up godly men who will, uh, who will follow him. Um, of his martyrdom. Uh, once his work in Germany was done, and one of the things that's interesting is that uh, Boniface began his first overseas experience was actually in Frisia, right, with Willebrod. 
And he had to leave that very early on because of the political situation there. The prince named Ratbod uh, was, was uh, killing, was attacking uh, Christians. And he had to leave. Well, at the end of his life, after he, the Lord uses him to establish uh, the church in these regions of Germany, he desires to go back to, Fris- to, to Frisia. And so he returns to Frisia to labor among the Frisians. And here, he and a group of approximately 50 converts who were preparing to be baptized uh, were killed by a mob of angry pagans who came upon them and slew him. And I think as we read uh, Hebrews 11, one of the things that's interesting about that account is that you have reports of great success and victory, right? Uh, Coupled with reports of suffering and of death of martyrdom. And we remember that faithfulness sometimes results, looks like, right, stopping the mouths of lions. Uh, You would think that if Boniface was going to be killed, he was going to be killed when he chopped the tree down, right? That would be the place where he should have died. Um, And yet, faithfulness also looks, it's the same faithfulness, right? It's the same love to Jesus, but it just looks differently depending on God's providential arrangement, what he has decided for you. Uh, It sometimes looks like giving your life. For Christ, and this is what uh, Boniface did in Frisia, with over fifty converts as well, who were preparing uh, for baptism. So the man and his ministry, Boniface's principal and enduring work, was not certainly not as a theologian. Okay, uh, one one of the fascinating things is as you study church history, you you begin to see how different. Uh, God uses different people, how differently he uses different people. And, you know, we heard uh, last week um, how God used men and gifted them in such remarkable ways to help through language encapsulate, articulate the biblical doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And that came with suffering at the same time, but they were used in that way to really advance the church's understanding of the faith that has been given once for all to the saints. Well, Boniface is not like that. He's not a pioneering theologian, right? He's not articulating things in a new or profound way. He's also not a pioneering missionary, and that's what's interesting about him as well. Um, Many, many men came before him, both connected with Rome, but principally many, many from Ireland and these early Irish Celtic missionaries. He was not so much a pioneering missionary. He was a fearless preacher. He was a a faithful uh, evangelist and missionary, but he was not a pioneering missionary. His, His real significance lies in his work as a consolidator and as a practical administrator. And I say administrator, you might think, oh, like someone sitting across a desk pushing papers, right? That's not this kind of administrator, okay? This is um, a kind of administrator who is out, who is traveling to and fro, who's meeting with people that are under his charge, bishops and, and priests, and, you know, and he's, he's dealing with kings on the one hand, he's dealing with his, uh, his superiors on the other, he's dealing with pagans, he's this is, this is the type of administrator that I'm talking about. But the, the Lord used him to consolidate and to organize the German church. And by the time he left Germany, uh, you had 
uh, basically, I mean, we, you know, presbyteries, right, were started by him, okay? Uh, he was used to found and to organize and to establish uh, the church in Germany. Uh, his preaching was characterized by orthodox simplicity and directness. We're going to see this in a moment. Uh, he was a model of personal purity, discipline, and tireless energy. I think that's the thing in reading the, uh, the books and the, the, the articles that I, that I found concerning him. All of them noted his discipline, his purity, um, and his tireless energy. And these are, these are character traits that are not, uh, at least in our time, not as, as esteemed as maybe they should be, right? We value what? Vulnerability, right? These sorts of things. Authenticity, right? These are the things that sort of get us going. But, but I think we have a lot to learn um, from people who understood that God had given them a task to do, and they were going to do it with all of their might, right? Whatever the Lord has given you to do, you do it with all of your might. Um, discipline, purity, and tireless energy. Now, his greatest weakness, um, he was not uh, contrasting him with the man we looked at, Theodore of Tarsus, who sought to integrate and bring compromise. He, Theodore was a, a peacemaker between the Irish Celtic model and the Anglo-Saxon model. Um, Winfred Boniface uh, was not as tolerant, uh, perhaps not as helpful in this way. Um, remember, he not only had the blessing of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, but he also was connected uh, to, the, um, to the, the Frankish kings, the Frankish kingdom. And um, he was sometimes, and he, he was intolerant uh, toward the Irish bishops, and practices, and um, this was one of the things. And in this time, one of the—I um, don't know how you would say this—but but one of one of the things that we look back and say, "Oh, if, what, what what would have happened if it could have been different?" Right? Um, now, I, I'm not saying here that the Irish were this innocent, like you know, oh, we just want to get along, and it's these big bad Rome, you know, Pope-connected people that are making trouble. No, the Irish were just as fiercely committed to their way as well. Okay, it wasn't just Boniface. Um, they were just as fiercely committed to what they had received. And yet, sadly, uh, there was much um, uh, animosity uh, and intolerance one towards another. I think that would be uh, probably uh, his, greatest, his greatest weakness. I want to read uh, very briefly. If you turn your page over, on the other side, uh, we have a sample here of one of his sermons and um, I'll just read a portion of this, uh, and then uh, we will uh, conclude our study uh, for this evening. Uh, this is Sermon 15. Uh, Listen, my brethren, and consider well what you have solemnly renounced in your baptism. You have renounced the devil and all his works and all his pomp. But what are the works of the devil? They are pride, idolatry, envy, murder, calumny, lying, perjury, hatred, fornication, adultery, every kind of lewdness. Skipping down here, uh, note what he mentions here. Incantations, lots, belief in witches and werewolves, abortion, amulets. And so I, I love you know, reading history because you realize... He's dealing with a different people, 
right? <laughs> he is dealing, uh, these are new converts from uh, Germanic paganism. And he is applying, you know, he's, there's certain general sins that anyone from anywhere is going to have to, to battle against. Uh, perjury, hatred, adultery, these things. But he particularizes, he applies for his audience, he names the things that he knows are going, could prove a snare to their faith. Belief in witches and werewolves, amulets, right? These little instruments that were believed to possess power over spirits or over nature. Uh, These and all such evil things are the works of the devil, all of which you have forsworn by your baptism. Uh, Skipping down here, he says, um, I admonish you, uh, my dearest brethren, to remember that you have promised what you have promised Almighty God. For, first, you have promised to believe in Almighty God and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, one Almighty God in perfect trinity. And this is why I say that Boniface embodies this orthodox simplicity. He's not seeking to, re, to, to advance or, or rediscover things. He's simply presenting to them the faith, right? This is what you have professed to believe. This is the God in whom you have believed. The Father, His Son, the Holy Spirit. Of course, uh, language taken apparently from the Apostles' Creed or, or something similar. It's, it's very uh, similar. And these are the commandments which you shall keep and fulfill. To love God whom you profess. And then skipping down, he says, Teach your sons to fear God. Teach your whole family to do so. And it's, it's beautiful when you think about this because, you know, you think about these people who, 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 had, who have come to the knowledge of the true and the living God and of his son and what they're coming out of, the fear that they were enslaved in. You know, Hebrews talks about the the fear of death by which the devil held us, right, before the coming of faith. And what what they were ensnared by, what they were held by, delivered from that by the gospel. And then he's told, teach your sons, your whole family, right? Beautiful admonition. Skipping down another line, keep the Sabbath and go to church to pray, but not to prattle. (laughs) I mean, you have to love this simplicity. He knows people, doesn't he? And how often do we need to hear that, right? Go to church on the Lord's Day to pray, not to prattle, not to talk uh, without, without, you know, meaninglessly, not to prattle. Give alms according to your power. Then he's skipping down. Cling to the Lord's Prayer and the Creed and communicate them to your own children and to those whose baptismal sponsors you are. And so again, you see this early. We were talking about this in the Christian education class at the seminary, how the Creed, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, these historic forms that were considered, this is Christian Discipleship 101. The Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And you see in the Heidelberg Catechism, it follows the same pattern right into the Reformation. The Westminster Confession of uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, Larger Catechism as well, uh, a similar pattern, uh, though maybe not as explicit in terms of the creed, but definitely the same order of, of that. 
Um, so you see his practical, his simplicity, cling to the Lord's Prayer. And then he says under that, and partake from t- time to time of the Lord's Supper, encouraging them uh, in that as well. Skipping down all the way to the end, um, let me just see here if there's anything else. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me. Let me read this. Um, believe in the advent of Christ. So he returns now to the creed. He kind of begins with the creed, and then he goes to the commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and then he returns to the creed. Believe in the advent of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the judgment of all men. For then the impious shall be separated from the just, the one for the everlasting fire, the others for the eternal life. Then begins a life with God without death, a light without shadows, a health without sickness, a plenty without hunger, a happiness without fear, a joy with no misgivings. Then comes the eternal glory in which the just shall shine like suns, for no eye has ever seen nor ear has ever heard. No heart has ever dreamed of all that which God has prepared for those whom he loves. Um, and so you can see he's, uh, he's simply quoting scripture um, and, and uh, how powerful this would have been to hear right in, uh, in live. Uh, at the end, he says, if with the aid of Christ you will truly fulfill these commands, then in this life you can with confidence approach the altar of God and in the next you shall partake of the everlasting bliss. And um, acknowledging uh, both the aid of Christ, if with the aid of Christ, you truly fulfill these commands. This is not something you do without Christ. You cannot do this without Christ. Um, Now, I would say in reading uh, these ancient authors, and especially reading reading Boniface, um, I think there is much that we can learn uh, from them. Uh, their orthodox simplicity, their understanding of the antithesis between idolatry and true worship, true religion, their boldness, their their courage in confronting it uh, where they found it. Um, Some lessons for the church. We may be called to serve Christ not in the high sunny days of a relatively stable, secure, and prosperous Christian empire, but in the chaotic and dangerous days of its decline. And so uh, I think one of the things when studying the Middle Ages, especially this early period before you have uh, kind of the emergence of the high Middle Ages where things are a little much more stable, um, we remember that God appoints our times, our seasons, the places of our dwelling, um, and he decides, he appoints, we may be called to serve Christ, in a period of great, I mean, as Dane uh, showed, presented last week, the, 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 the almost unbelievable events associated with Nicaea. Uh, bishops being called by the emperor of Rome to gather uh, under his protection and blessing. And you think of the previous hundreds of years, the previous 300 years of oppression and bloodshed. Uh, amazing. Now, that doesn't mean everything was good, but you may be called in that moment to see a, 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 a partial victory of that final victory that is promised us in Christ. You also may be, in God's wisdom, appointed to live in a time 
when, at least in your corner of the world, things appear to be at an end. And uh, one of the things that's interesting, and I think this is, this is so powerful, is that many in Rome at the time of Gregory the Great believed that the world was coming to an end. And yet, in that moment, when things were darkest, Gregory the Great is looking out and he's thinking about the farthest reaches of northern Europe and he's sending missionaries to them. His eye is not on an earthly city. He, has, he, understood, he understood the trajectory of the gospel, right? He understood what Christ was doing and, and is doing and will do. And so there's a, there's a lesson there for us to be faithful even in the midst of things before our eyes are crumbling, we keep our eyes fixed on what is to come, the city whose builder is, is God. Uh, we should emulate Boniface's personal bravery. Uh, you had to be brave to do this sort of stuff. I mean, and it's not just preaching to pagans who were used to a life of warfare, who had no problem killing you, right? They, it wasn't just preaching to pagans. I mean, you were traveling on foot. You were facing hunger. You were facing thirst. You were facing robbers, bandits. I mean, this was, you had to be brave in order to do this. We should emulate that bravery. Uh, zeal and energy as well as his pure and simple confrontation of false religion. It really is simple. It pre- the presenting issues may appear to be complex, but at root, it's very simple. It's God or an idol. It's the true God or the false, or false God. It's the living God or dead idols. It's black and white, in essence. It's simple. And he, they understood this. You're calling people out of darkness into light, from idols to, the, to worship and to serve the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's very simple. We should learn from that. We can learn from that. Um, we can also learn, though, we should avoid his insistence and not just his, again, I'm not picking on Boniface, but the insistence on conformity to relatively unimportant traditions. And one of, the, one of the sad things in this story is that you had uh, more Irish-oriented, the Irish model had their customs, their traditions, their way of doing things, and you had those connected uh, to Rome. And oftentimes they were more insistent on preserving relatively unimportant traditions, okay, like the haircut, um, than on stewarding the administration from God, which is by faith, right? And so there is something we can learn from them is to avoid this kind of, this kind of distraction um, and to focus on, much like Theodore of Tarsus understood, to try to make, to compromise where that is the right thing to do um, so that the work of God is not hindered by these particular differences of custom. Um, We should avoid his insistence on conformity to unimportant, relatively unimportant traditions. And with that, uh, we will close.
uh, that, that study.